Brian, you sounded like you weren't sure if you were supposed to ask him to be seated or not. What else were they going to do? Do jumping jacks. Well, I looked at it and I didn't see you. I was like, oh, maybe it's up to me. Yeah, go for it, man. If you would open your Bible this evening to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. I was reading this afternoon uh, about Amos. And um, you'll remember a prophet in the Old Testament, Amos. And his name literally means uh, the one who bears a heavy burden. And there's this entire argument that he was probably named that. Because after so many times of his heralding God's word, when people saw him, they thought in their hearts, oh great, here comes the one with a great big burden. Um, and, and that got me to thinking of the colloquial phrase that we often say of here comes trouble. Um, and tonight's psalm is really about uh, being in trouble. And friends, in this life, there are a few things that are more difficult than and isolating than being in trouble, than going through an extreme uh, time of affliction. Uh, Alexander McLaren said, The soul that has to wade through deep waters has always to do it alone. For no human sympathy reaches to full knowledge of or share in even the best loved one's grief. We have companions in joy, but sorrow we have to face by ourselves. And he goes on in saying, unless, of course, we have Jesus with us in the darkness, we have no one. I'll let that sink in for a moment. When we go through the difficult patches of life, uh, we can have the greatest of encouragers alongside, but in a sense, we are still alone in facing that spiritual difficulty unless, of course, we have the joy of knowing the One who was bruised on our account, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ella Wilcox, that great American poet, said, Laugh and the world will laugh with you, but weep and you will have to weep alone. So it is in Psalm 142. If you would, do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand this evening as we read these words with that understanding of trouble in mind, these seven verses, written under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, You know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to You, O Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to Your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Will you, would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come into your presence tonight. Thankful for these words. Thankful knowing that you ultimately are our deliverer. And that these words ultimately are spoken certainly of Christ. And so, Father, we come tonight thankful that we don't go through difficult days alone. Uh, we certainly face a, a, a time in human history that is beset with so much confusion, slander, misunderstanding, but we don't endure that alone because you have told us that you are with us into the end of the age. So might we rejoice in that truth tonight. In Christ's name, amen. This psalm is really written... Um, 
as David is pursued by Saul into the entrance of the cave. And that is what is listed here in the ascription that it is a masculine of David when he was um, in the cave. There we have the kind of the illustration that David is alone, that he is without his companions and without help. And knowing that, knowing that this is at the moment where David was uh, there in the cave, we can thumb back in our mind a couple years um, to Psalm 57. And Psalm 57, if you want to turn there quickly, uh, was a companion psalm to Psalm 142. And I want you to I want to just encourage you with where Psalm 57 really ends. In all likelihood, when these were written, and I don't want to get into a debate about this, but in all likelihood, Psalm 142, if we are to judge by the intensity of the psalm, is the psalm that was written first, and then Psalm 57 was written afterwards. Psalm 152 kind of has that that feeling of urgency to it, and then it leads in the direction of what we find starting in verse 5 of Psalm 57. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen in it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. And that really is the thrust of Psalm 57, this verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to You, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to You among the nations. For Your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. And so we see the joy that David is moving in the direction of. Exalting God in the midst of his trouble and his difficulty. But again, here in Psalm 142, we see that the first two verses really are emphasizing this urgent plea of crying out to the Lord, of begging the Lord for His mercy and for His help. The, 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 the thrust leaves us with an understanding here in verse 1. With my voice I cry to the Lord. With my voice I plead for the mercy of the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. There is this This weight with which David is praying. Which is instructive if we really think about it. David is not just bowing and praying the same old prayer the same old way. David is in a position of difficulty where he is fiercely and urgently contending with God, knowing that in his trouble, if he is in fact alone, that God has abandoned him, that he is without hope. And that should instruct us in a few ways, but namely it should instruct us in this way. How often do we cry out before the Lord with urgency, uh, with, with intensity and fervency before the Lord? Isn't it more often in our lives that we fall into a kind of spiritual slumber where there is a lack of urgency, where there's a lack of concern that we face trouble. And if you're here tonight and you say, well, Jay, I mean, that's because I'm not facing trouble at the moment. And we talked about this a little bit last week. If we get on an airplane and the plane takes a nosedive towards the earth, our prayer life tends to come to life. But friends, I promise you that's not because we don't face trouble in our day. It's because we lack the spiritual sense to be aware of the real danger. And the real danger is this. That a lost and dying world that is before us in our own generation is facing the impending wrath of Almighty God. And one day, and it may be very soon, there's a lot of preachers who peddle a lot of books about it being one day very soon. I don't know when it will be, but I know when that day comes, 
And we're one day closer to it today than, and we're seven days closer to it than we were the time we met for Psalm 141. There is calamity that is facing all of the earth that are still in their trespasses and sins. Now marry that with how often we cry out to the Lord fervently for lost souls. And in that equation, and I don't mean to instill in you undue um, guilt, but I think we're all guilty of not praying for our nation, for our children. I was telling Brian, this is all off script. You're just getting my heart here. Um, I was telling Brian and Libby, one of the things that I find all throughout the the um, the Psalter, and it was really driven home in a sermon that I listened to for my own edification last night before bed. Um, that the the thrust of the argument was that the children of Israel, when they thought about contending for the faith and they thought about believing what is true, that there was always this kind of emphasis that having their children believe what they believed about Yahweh, about the living God, was not enough for them. The, the real litmus test for spiritual success and growth wasn't found in themselves. It wasn't even found really in their children. There was always this thrust of our children's children. That if we really are going to defend and pursue the faith once for all delivered to the saints, it comes in what our grandchildren believe. And really what is there is the trouble that faces all of us is that there is a lifetime pursuit of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's not light. It's not tepid. There is a real spiritual enemy who faces the church today in Satan, and he really is at work. But how often do we settle for spiritual success merely being in the here and now, in filling the church today, and all of the things that so often pervade our thoughts, all of that to say... The real trouble that we should be crying out for is for our children's children in this nation to know the living God. And that we will not hold anything in our lives back from that end. You can take our jobs, you can take our material things, you can take our health, but we will give all that we are in the direction of rightly dividing the word of truth to the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. You see, here's what happens far too often. Man, I'm really going in this direction. Um, we look back and we think about the good old days. And if we would just go back and we would do and fill in the blank, whatever the activity was, I mean, we had a big crowd back then. Friends, it doesn't matter if we amass a huge crowd. The ultimate outworking of our efforts in ministry come, uh, we can judge them rightly, and I don't even know that we can judge them rightly in our lifetimes. But if we're going to, it has to come over the long haul. There is, I say all of this kindly, but we've got to repent of all of the silliness that is behind us. All of the goofy things that we've done to try and build a crowd instead of giving our lives and all that we are for the right proclamation of the Word. Because God is not, He's not thought, well, you know, I've called my prophets of old to speak my Word. I called the, 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 the um, apostles to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But you know what? In the year 2020, in the 1900s, I'm just going to allow you all to do whatever you think is right in your own wisdom. That's not the God that we face. That's not the God that's coming to judge the living and the dead. The God that we face is one who has worked tirelessly to make a name for Himself. To bring glory to His own name in His own building of the church. So friends, all of that should, I think, rightly give us the weight that we face a trouble of coming away from so much foolishness in religion in America and really fighting the fight of contending for purity of doctrine, clarity of the gospel with all that we are.
Now, this psalm can be rightly applied to all kinds of trouble in our lives, but I believe that first and primarily, it has to be applied to the spiritual trouble that we all face. C.S. Lewis said rightly, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is a megaphone to arouse a deaf world. And friends, there should be nothing that awakes us to the reality that we face more than when Christ Himself says that on the final day, and I'm not trying to overemphasize and just be a hellfire and brimstone preacher here, but there should be nothing that grabs our attention more than knowing that our Savior has said there will be a day where there will be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a lot of pain ahead of us if we play games with the Gospel. Allow that to sober us this evening. So first, the psalmist comes and he offers his plea. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I spoke with a brother this week. I was so thankful for the conversation walking away uh, because there was a weight to the conversation. And the substance was, Jay, I don't think that most of the people in our congregations today understand the privilege that it is to come and pray before a holy God. Isn't that true? Haven't we forgotten the weight of what it means to be able to come through the blood of Christ before the throne of grace and plead for His mercy, not only for ourselves, but for our nation and for our children and for our children's children. For the Gospel to be known throughout the earth. It's possible here as we turn then from this plea for God to come and help in this time of trouble, it's possible that as we move on to verse 3, that the emphasis really could be placed in the final stanza. Some of you all will have Bibles, and it's likely that the Bible will divide this first stanza to be those first two verses. But it's, it's also plausible to make the argument that verse 3 should be included in that first stanza. When my spirit faints within me, you know the way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. He's giving the why here. Why is it that he's crying out for help? And that is because there is a trap laid before him. There is difficulty that he faces. The, the world is not full of good people that just need enough time to come to relationship with a holy God. The world is full of cruel people who set a trap in the way of God's people. And here, we rightly could put verse 3 with verse 1 and 2. But it's also right to leave it in in its own own, um, stanza in verses 3 and 4, because really, there is this emphasis for moving in verses 1 and 2, crying out in the first person, I cry aloud, I lift my voice, I pour out my complaint, to in uh, verse, uh, verses 3 and 4, there is this Godward direction. Instead of it being I, now it says, when my spirit faints within me, and he's addressing God, you know the way, in the path where I walk, They have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. This same kind of pivoting happens in the text if we look at Psalm 23. Uh, This change of pronouns comes when, the, when David cries out, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside uh, quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths. But then there is this pivotal point where David speaks directly to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you, God, are with me. You know, one of the most instructive things is not only does the psalmist teach us to cry out to God, 
um, to, to be bold in our plea, but just to constantly be mindful of who it is that we're speaking to. Uh, the, the Psalms are not just the ramblings of someone in trouble. They are God-inspired instruction about when we face trouble, how to rightly relate to the living God. In verses 3 and 4, David's plea for help really comes to a full expression and has two parts in in 3 and 4. First, that the path before him is a treacherous one. It's full of many dangers, toils, and snares. And isn't that true in our own life? So David cries for help. And friends, in the spiritual battle that is is raging around us, we need to cry out to God for help. Second, he says, I have no friends here. I'm alone. I am lost. I'm without company. It's interesting because if we were to look back at first. Samuel chapter 22, and I believe it is the very first verse. David actually is dealing with God there, and in the, uh, at the mouth of the cave, we find out, probably after this psalm, after he has cried out to God in this way, um, God sends 400 companions. And so there's this reality that we can't do ministry, and we can't do the Christian life alone. Friends, do we not remember that the law is boiled down into two separate commandments by Christ? That we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might, with everything that we are, we are to love the living God. But the second, he says, is like unto it. And that is what? That we love our neighbor as ourselves, right? The individualism of the American model of Christianity has duped so many people into believing we can live the Christian life ourselves. Not only are we so arrogant to believe that we don't need the Lord, we don't need anyone. Now, we'll never functionally say that, but we find it all the time. In different ways, the, uh, one of the, the axioms that comes to mind, the sayings that we hear in our day is, uh, my faith isn't about religion, it's about a relationship. I have a brother, pastor, friend who said recently, that's fine and there is truth in that, but ultimately the difficulty as we face Christianity in our day is so many people who are saying that are living in an abusive relationship toward the Lord and towards His church. Now we forget that we are called into a body to give all of our lives for the proclamation of the Gospel. And here David rightly says, I need help. And I'm alone. I need companions. Friends, isn't it a joy that when we cry out to God, He gives us more than we could ever ask or think? The reality that not only does He save us unto Himself, but He saves us into the body of Christ. There has never been a Christian who has rightly been saved and then not called into the body. And some might argue, well, what about the thief on the cross? And the answer to that would be, well, he was in paradise with Christ that day. He was drawn into the fullness of the saints. Talk about a glorious salvation. To spend hours alongside of our suffering Savior and then to be with Him in glory. That's a short sanctification process and it sounds like a fantastic one. David had enemies all around him, but he seemingly had forgotten that he also had a God who constantly brings along helpers in due time. You'll remember, David is the same psalmist that wrote in Psalm 16, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, and He is at my right hand. Because of that, I will not be shaken. And yet here, we find David crying out 
Look to the right and see there is no one who takes notice of me. Now I want you to think about this. If you, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, and you realize that as David is crying out, God, there's no one here. That in that moment, God brings 400 people around him. Uh, that's the benevolence of our God. That when we cry out to Him, forgetting in the first place that He is at our right hand, so we never have to be shaken. God plus one is enough. Friends, if you're left alone with nothing but the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, you have enough. But David seemingly has forgotten that. And so he turns to God and he says, I'm alone. And in in that experience, God says, yeah, I've got 400 people for you. No problem. And that 400 people really begins uh, to, to be the nucleus, the core of David's army in the days ahead. Our God is, is always taking care of us and showing us His compassion. I think one of the interesting things is, is this. And, and C.S. Lewis said it, and I mentioned it, I think, in, when we, we went through Psalm 1. But the Psalms are, are, not only God's, are not only man's words to God. This is David pleading with the Lord. But we have to remember, this is inspired. This isn't David just having a bad day. These are Holy Spirit-inspired words. So our God is so compassionate that He stirs in David a heart that cries out, I'm alone, I need help, so that God can say, I'll send you help. But don't forget, I'm also the one who ultimately is your help in time of difficulty, in time of trouble. Verse 3 really is, Derek Kinder has three, and we'll go through them. He he calls verse 3 of Psalm 142, the first mountaintop. My spirit faints within me. You know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. And and then he calls verse 5, the second summit of faith in the psalm, because it expresses this confidence in spite of the circumstances. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. As far as David could see, he was alone. He was there in the cave alone. But in spite of that reality, he knew, I believe, that ultimately, God was with him. And this is where we really land in Psalm 16, verse 8. And because the Lord is at his right hand, he's not going to be shaken. And we find in verse 5, the first of four things that God is to David in his time of trouble. One is his refuge. I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge. David acknowledging that there had been traps set for him and that there were these people pursuing him and yet God alone. He's not saying, God, you will come and deal with my enemies immediately. The first thing for David in the impulse of his mind is to run to God, that God is a refuge, a place of strength in the midst of his difficulty. Now, let's step back for a moment and and, and remember the trouble that faces humanity. And that is the wrath of God. At this very moment, if you are not in Christ, the wrath of God abides upon you. You're already spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. The right judicial judgment is that you have sinned against a holy God and deserve His wrath for all of eternity. And so the only... The only right response to that reality, to that bit of trouble, is to cry out to God to be your refuge. It's interesting, isn't it, the shadows that we find in the Old Testament that David says, you are my refuge to Yahweh. And that we as Christians can only find refuge from the wrath of God in the person of Christ. 
And that really we find this biblical expression all throughout the New Testament. Instead of talking about being saved as the way of describing salvation, it is being in Christ. That He is our refuge. That we find our hiding place from the wrath of God in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the greatest danger that any of us ever face to be under the wrath of God. And it is the greatest glory that, that our Father would send His only begotten Son that as we believe upon Him, we would have everlasting life and protection from the judgment to come. It's why Top Lady praised God saying, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in Thee. It's the heartbeat of so many of all of the saints throughout church history. And so the question tonight is this Are you hidden in Christ? It doesn't help to find uh, your satisfaction and confidence of being right with God in your own religious piety. Friends, there are many people who will try to hide under their theological knowledge on the day of wrath, and it won't be enough. There will be many people who try to hide in their own goodness, and I promise you, your goodness will fail. There will be some who will try to hide under their, their, their attendance in church, their tithing, and whatever the, the case may be. And in that day, they will find the words, depart from me, I never knew you. The most important question that we can answer tonight in the greatest trouble that we face, is simply, are we in Christ? And the only way that we're in Christ is if by mercy, God has opened our blinded eyes to the fact that we are sinful people in need of the redeeming blood of Christ and we have fled to Christ in repentant faith for that covering. So have you found refuge there? Secondly, David says God is my refuge in verse 5. He is my portion in the land of the living. You'll remember when Abraham left from battle against the great kings, he comes and he gives Melchizedek a part of the spoils of war, the, the, the high priest there from Salem. And then he goes on to give the rest of the spoils uh, of war uh, later in, in the passage. And then come these words in Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, Abram. I am your shield, your great reward. Friend, are you not only is he the place of our refuge, but we find in the Word of God, Jesus telling us that where our heart is, there our treasure will be also. It's the marquee verse of every 20th century building project. As pastors have used it to, to try to leverage the church in the direction of doing some capital giving that they want but friends, the emphasis is that our greatest treasure can never be found in buildings. It can never be found in empires that we ascribe the name of Christ to. It is only in the person of Christ Himself. So let me ask you this question. Is Jesus really the treasure of your heart? Don't be deceived into believing that you're a Christian if you don't find inside of yourself this hungering to know Jesus more. That He really is the treasure of your heart. That He really is the longing of your soul. Far too often we settle in our lives, beloved, for a far lesser treasure. We, we settle for all of the things that I just mentioned. For the religious pat on the back. Uh, we settle to merely do things in our own strength. But friends, we have the sovereign God of all of the universe who has called us according to His purpose, and we should find joy in Him alone. So God is our refuge. God is our treasure. He is our delight. He is where we hide. God is also 
Savior in verse 6. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me. Save me from my persecutors. God saved David from those who were too strong for him. God delivered David time and time. Isn't that the refrain of David's life? It's not that David was just this mighty man in his own strength. And again, I draw you back to the the, the words that are so often misunderstood. That David is a man after God's own heart. And people understand that to believe that David was this great moral person in his own strength. Which I'm just like, head to Psalm 51. Um, The whole narrative of his life, we're taught he's not a great moral guy in his own being. What, 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 what is intended to be conveyed when, when the Bible says, when God says that David is a man after my own heart, is juxtaposed to what, what has just been said. And that is, look, you have chosen kings, Israel. You've chosen these men. But David's a man after my heart. David is my anointed. He's the one that I have brought into my plan of redemption. I say, and ultimately what we have to see is this reality all throughout David's life that he's being saved and, and the people of Israel from Goliath and, and David personally in so many battles, not just so that he can be propped up so that we can, as some pastor in 2022 can tell you all to be more moral people, but so you can look back throughout history and realize that through the lineage of David, Jesus comes and our God delivered David so that we would be delivered forever. Isn't that a joy? To know that God is the one who does the saving, period. Our God doesn't attempt salvation. He completes it. He says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. See the salvation that I bring to pass. It's a great joy to pillow our heads knowing that the redemption of our souls does not lie in us, but in Christ. And in Christ alone. God is our deliverer. He is our Savior. And friends, the thing that we have to see again is not that we need to be saved from the politicians in Washington. It's not that we need to be saved from liberalism in America, although that's a problem and it has been for 200 years. The greatest thing that any one of us here tonight need to be saved from is from ourselves. And yet we have many, many Many churches that will gather tonight and on Sunday morning and they will proclaim a gospel that begins with, well, God did this thing, but it ends with, and so you must. The gospel is that God saves us from ourselves for His own glory. And so God also, David says, in verse 7, is the one who liberates his soul. Bring me out of prison. Set me free. And isn't it a joy that we are set free from all of our own rebellion towards God? From all of our own goodness. From all of our own efforts. From all of our own striving. And why? So that we can praise God. So that we can be right worshipers. And I used to be convinced that the greatest thing that that faces the the church in our generation is liberal theology. And I think that that's a pretty good enemy. It's a trouble that needs to be contended with. And and that means that we're going to have to get off of theology doesn't matter and really do the work of contending for the faith once for all delivered the saints with our children and grandchildren. But increasingly, pastorally, as I walk in the Lord and with you all, and I watch, not just in my own heart, and in just general American Christianity today, I think one of the greatest difficulties facing the church is that we haven't seen genuine worship in so long. We might have forgotten what it really looks like. And I don't say that to slap anybody in the face. 
say it with a broken heart. I say it with a little bit of verses 1 and 2 in my own lodged right about here. God, we need your help to repent of false forms of worship and turn to you and to be the men and women who you call us to be to worship you in spirit and in truth, not just in line with what we're used to, but in line with what your word says. Deliver us, O God, from the prison of our own misconceptions of what it means to worship. It's not about feelings, friends. It's about knowing who Jesus really is and what he has actually accomplished. This first summit of, of, of faith in this passage, Derek Kinder sees, is, is verse 3 again. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way in the path where I walk. They have hidden a trap for me. And then in verse 5 is the next summit of his affliction and praise to God. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. But here in verse 7, we find the final verse. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you deal bountifully with me. I know the joys then that we face as we read this psalm, again, remembering as we began that the greatest trouble of going through affliction is that in a real human sense, we have to go that trouble, through that trouble alone. But the glory of the Gospel is that in Christ we never face the spiritual difficulty of worshiping God according to God's Word. We never face that battle alone. We're always drawn into the body that we might worship in spirit and in truth. C.S. Lewis, I said, uh, rightly paints the picture that pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Lewis also says that we read to know we're not alone. And so as we come to Psalm 142, I really want to emphasize to you in remembering that all of these psalms are really directed at right worship in the body. Part of what I believe God is aiming us to is this reality that we are going to face. Listen, friends, I promise you this. Religion is easy. There is a propensity in humanity to worship something. And every generation comes up with a colloquial civil religion. That's normal in the course of human history. That's nothing that's difficult. Lost people will applaud you in your way uh, on the the path to religion. But if you're really going to live your life under the authority of this book, It's a treacherous journey. People will slander you. There's a reason why Jesus ended the Beatitudes by giving an exhortation that we will be blessed as we are slandered for His namesake. Because when we really live for Jesus, there's going to be difficulty. But friends, isn't it a joy to know that we don't face that difficulty alone? And I I mean that first and primarily in my life because of all of you. Like It's a joy to not have to preach to empty chairs. It's a joy to know that I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are excited about exalting God for what He did in our lives in spite of everything that we are. That's a joy. But it doesn't stop here. Uh, you see, the reality is we are called to, to, to really reckon with the fact that God has been up to redeeming His church for 2,000 years. We have 2,000 years of church history that we can study and come to know if we really want to see God exalted and rightly worshipped. We don't have to look at the churches in our day and age that have full sanctuaries on Sunday night and say, well, they must be doing everything right. No. 
We can contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, first and primarily under the weight of God's word, but also with a lot of encouragement from people who are willing to sacrifice their own lives for the truth of God's word. We never face this question of worshiping in spirit and in truth alone. And so we read to know we're not alone. I think the greatest joy in this passage is feeling the weight that it speaks so evidently, so plainly of Christ. That no one knew the reality of suffering through trouble alone as much as our Savior did. Because the reality is, we have been told that God will never leave us or forsake us, but we remember in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was utterly alone in that trouble. But brothers and sisters, we are never alone. He is always with us. And we have that reminder in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the question. Is worshiping in spirit and in truth a difficult, perilous journey in our day and age? The answer is yes. There's, there's, there's not going to be tonight, a, unless the Lord pours His Spirit out and He could do this, there's not going to be a national push for all of the politicians in Washington to get right the worship of God. The world is unconcerned and the church is unconcerned in so many ways with the right worship of God. But do you know why Christ came really at the end of all of His suffering, of all of His walking in the sorrows of this life? Some would say it's to save you and I, and that's part of the answer. But the basis of the real, the, the real thrust of the reason why Jesus came and suffered and died is not only for our salvation, but that God would be rightly worshipped. And Jesus faced the task that He was given alone, that we never would have to be alone in the task of right worship. He's given us His Son. He's called us by name. He's given us the body. Now, how foolish would it be to come to that part in the story and to find the church saying, well, that's all nice, but we don't want to worship according to what you have to say, Jesus. Do you see the dilemma of what we face? Do you see the tragedy of American Christianity in the fact that our grandchildren and our children have departed so many doctrines once for all delivered to the, 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 the saints? Friends, I don't want you to walk out of here tonight discouraged. I want you to walk out rejoicing in the reality that we have a great high priest, but I also want you to face the reality that Satan is perfectly happy with generations of Americans building sanctuaries, filling them with people, and singing songs every week, and plunging people beneath water, as long as we don't actually worship according to the Word of God under the doctrines that have been defended by the saints. So do we face trouble tonight? I think we do. And I think, instead of ending in the psalm that I'm preaching to you tonight, let's end where David ends in Psalm 57. 
Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all of the earth. They have set nets for my steps. Friends, there are so many pastors and religious leaders in our country that have set nets to deceive the church away from genuine worship. My soul was drawn down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen in themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to You, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to You among the nation. For Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. May that be the cry of our heart in this place, that God would be rightly exalted. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you tonight acknowledging the trouble of our own hearts that often we are merely lazy, spiritually speaking. We grow indifferent and we aim low in our spiritual life. But Father, in that trouble, You've not left us. You've not forsaken us. You've sent Your only Son, our great High Priest, into this world that You would be rightly worshipped according to Your Word and in accordance with Your sovereign plan. Might we be a church who throws aside the weight of everything that hinders us. That we would worship You in a way not that man would be pleased, but that You would be exalted and glorified. And that we would be the beneficiaries in beholding that glory. Father, might we not be trivial when we come before Your throne, but might we always sense the weight of Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen. Oh. 